It's 1970. Passes 36 cents a gallon. You have a respectable collection of 8-track tapes and an old pasteboard box. Cream, Led Zeppelin, Johnny Cash, Jefferson Airplane, and Credence Clearwater Revival. You just need a car to listen to them in. You've got a little money and your gearhead. You have an itch that only a big power V8 can scratch. Not to mention that your friends have some cool rides too. One has a big block vet, another has a GTO judge, but you need something that can run with them, if not run away from them. You have options. The new 454 Chevelle, a 455 Buick GSX, a Mustang or another Ford with a 428 Cobra Jet, but you want something a little more special. You've seen the ads, Mopar, no car. You've seen the reviews and the time slips in the magazines. And you know there's an elephant in the room. You know you want a Hemi. The only question left is, what car? A Charger, a Challenger, a Cornette, a Super B, a Roadrunner, a GTX, or a Cuda? Or do you go wild and buy one of those wing cars like Richard Petty's been using? On this week's episode of Talking Shift, we are talking about the elephant motor, the legendary Hemi. First, we're going to discuss what Hemi means from a technical standpoint. Then we're going to talk about the development history of the Hemi, but we get into one of Tom Hanks' favorite subjects, World War II. After all that, we will talk about the Gen 1 Hemi, the Gen 2, and the Gen 3. And finally, we'll talk about the lasting effects that the Hemi has had on the automotive world. Talking Shift Podcast. My name is Cody Greer, and with me, as always, are my co-host Trey Sweeney. Hello, and Caleb Bailey. Hello. Well, that was a hell of an interest, Caleb. Well, tell me, guys, what would you pick? What's your pick for 1970? So I'd go uh, classic TV show uh, with Nash Bridges. I'd go Cuda. You go Cuda. Cuda. Cuda convertible. Yeah. Okay. What about you? There's no way you don't go Roadrunner. No Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the way I'm going. I'm going Roadrunner. Honestly, you go Roadrunner, though. That makes me think of Daisy Duke as well. You know, she had the Roadrunner in the uh, Dukes of Hazard, But the hers was a 72. Yeah, but you got the you got the Charger, too. All of them great cars. You do have the big boy. You do yeah. have the big boy. I'm going GTX. I'm going to get a man's car. Uh, huh? Well, also, think about it. All these cars, great trunk space. Yeah. yeah. Except for the Cuda. Yeah, not the Cuda. So that brings us to this next part. What is a Hemi? What makes it such a legend? Let's find out and start talking shift. So most people know that a Hemi engine is made by Chrysler Corporation. Some people know that a Hemi refers to the hemispherical combustion chamber in one of these engines. But what does that mean? What does it mean, Trey? It means that the cylinder heads <laughs> and piston are dome-shaped. This allows the piston tops to come up higher in the chamber, allowing for higher compression and more powerful combustion, making more power. So you're saying it's fast? Yes. Power. Can be. I know for a fact it is. Well, the early ones weren't that powerful, but hey, we, uh, we worked it out. Now, despite Mopar's long ad campaign making them think the otherwise, the Hemi wasn't invented by Chrysler or even the Dodge Brothers. The first hemispherical combustion chamber was first designed by Allie Ray Welch in Wisconsin sometime around the turn of the 20th century for use in boats. Is that the same Welch, the Mace, the grape juice? Could be. Cranberry Thompson. juice guy? I can't believe the Hemi was made by a cheesehead. 
That is really hard to, yeah. Well, he's eating a nice block of Wisconsin cheddar. He's like, you know what? And he's got the squeaky cheese curds and all that. Cheese. While screaming out, well, the Packers were in the early times here, but go Packers. Yeah. But that's why they all smell like cheese. After the use of boats, a Belgium company called Pipe began using them for designs and cars in 1905. Caleb, so this is our car podcast, but we're not even going to talk about the cars yet? We'll get to the cars. The thing is, though, there were other things before cars that involved a lot of the engineering that would later be used on cars. No. We're getting to it. No, no way. I don't <laughs> believe there are things before cars. We're getting to it. Aliens? Okay. So, how did Chrysler discover the use of the hemispherical combustion chamber? Like all other manufacturers, Chrysler learned some new tricks while building airplanes in World War II. For those of you who don't know, World War II was the largest scale conflict in recorded history. Millions of people all over the world were engaged in a conflict in the United States. When the United States joined that conflict and entered the war in December of 1941, almost all manufacturers stopped what they were doing and began to work to build the arsenal of democracy. More Americans went to work than ever before, effectively ending the Great Depression in the United States. Chrysler was one of those companies. Caleb, are you telling me that the Hemi won us the war? It actually never flew. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Teddy, we're just gonna let it be and say that the Hemi won us the war. I, I think I think so. The Hemi killed Hitler. <laughs> the Hemi killed Hitler. <laughs> that needs to be the name of this podcast. But. So I'm gonna make a note here that there was actually an agreement among the American automobile manufacturers to not create any new updated designs during the war so they could all focus on building what it would take to supply the US and its allies. Can I just say also building on my, my statement that Super B on the side of a plane would be completely badass. Oh, yes. <laughs> Probably was done during the Vietnam War. Honestly, yeah. I, I would <laughs> love to see a C-7 plum crazy purple plane flying through the air. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, during the war, Chrysler was working to develop a V-16 with hemispherical combustion chambers to go into the Thunderbolt fighter plane. But by the time research and development was finished, Hitler was dead, the Nazis surrendered, and Japan was on the ropes. Or he was in South America. Or he was out back in a ditch, covered in petrol on fire. <laughs> We've already established this, guys. The Hemi killed Hitler. Gosh, forget so easily. So, Chrysler took what it learned from about the hemispherical combustion chambers and mothballed it for a few years. By 1950, most American servicemen who had signed up for World War II were home. They came home to an economy that was better than they could have imagined in 1940. And as we all know, when the economy is good and people have money, people want cars. Can I say for the record, I'm going to buy cars regardless of Caleb. Yeah. Quality of cars will change, though, depending on what the economy is. I mean, I'm about to buy a car, and the economy's not all that great right now, guys. No? Yeah, well, we're crazy, Troy. We've established this many times. We're strange people. We, we are very strange people. The 1950s were no different. The car buying public at this time were ready for new engines and more power. It was time for the V8 to be reimagined. In 1932, Ford introduced the world to the American V8 power with the flathead Ford V8. At the time, it made a whopping 65 horsepower. By the time Ford stopped production in 1953, the most powerful flathead made 125 horsepower. But that wasn't enough. Are you telling me 125 horsepower isn't enough for you, Caleb? Is that what you're telling me right now? I'm telling you, we need more power. I mean, I've seen a lawnmower with 100 horsepower, so yeah. Where's that lawnmower at? <laughs> Dude put a V8 in it. It was pretty impressive. You know they actually have lawnmower racing as a real thing? Yeah, on dirt tracks. It's very scary. I think we should sponsor a talk and shift lawnmower. <laughs> I'd be down for that. We can go find an engine out back somewhere and throw it. My grandfather's a uh, 
lawnmower repair guy, so he's got a bunch of old, like... Maybe a V-twin? Oh, yeah. A V-twin to go in it. I want one of these old V-16 Hemis of mine. <laughs> <Ready one. laughs> yeah. Throw a propeller on the front and be flying down I-20. Hi, Shift Heads. I'd like to talk to you about something that's very important to us here. And it's one person and everything that they've done to help us get to this position. It's Tyler Gibson, graphic designer. There's no one I would trust more to put together images of things that I want to put in other places. Tyler Gibson has these goals. As a graphic designer and an artist where creativity is expected and appreciated. And his approach, he wants to help his clients and their brands meet their potential. And according to him, he's going to continually challenge himself to deliver the most simple and effective, efficient, and innovative solutions possible. Uh, he's helped us, and he can do anything that you want. Do you want a picture of yourself as King Kong climbing the side of a building? Yes. He can do it. Do you want him to help you uh, create a logo for what you're working with? Yes. Do you want him to help you advertise your business in a more professional way? Nobody can do it better than him. Please reach out to him at creativetyler.net or you can call him by phone at 601-209-9155 give him a call you'll be happy that you did I think two things for fueling the American desire for more power at this time first was the bootlegger during the Great Depression the production distribution and consumption of alcohol was illegal after the passing of the 18th amendment this also caused a rise in people selling illegal liquor and if you're going to sell it, you must get it to the place to sell. So, the people who transported the liquor modified their cars. So they would have an advantage over law enforcement. This is the beginning of hot riding. This led to the development of stock car racing and NASCAR. As we discussed in episodes one and two, if you haven't listened, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for, Trey? You to finish up talking about more NASCAR? <laughs> Second, a lot of men who returned from the war got deep into hot riding and racing as a means to get back some of the adrenaline they had missed since the war and as a way to spend time with friends. Many were mechanics during the war and came home with a lot of new tricks drawing out those hidden horses. Others learned how to weld machine necessary parts. In both situations, the need for more power and more speed was evident. By this time, everyone in the automotive industry and consumers knew where power more power was possible. The question was how to squeeze it out. So, Caleb, you're saying that NASCAR started in all this? Is that what you're telling me? That, that well, hot routing and NASCAR started each other. It's an Aerobaros. Ah. All because of liquor. Well, I would have been, been thrown underneath the jail due to my liquor collection that I have now. In 1950, Chrysler pulled the research. It had put in mothballs on hemispherical combustion chambers out to use in their new firepower engine series. This was Chrysler's first overhead valve V8. Of course, Chrysler's different brands used different names. Chrysler called it the Firepower. Dodge called it the Red Ram. DeSoto called it the Fire Dome. Can I say that all of these names sound badass? They do, don't they? <laughs> Fire Dome makes me think of Thunderdome, but yes, badass. Cool Oddly enough, Plymouth didn't have a version of this engine design at the time and continued to use the polyhead engines. Do we know why? No, it's just because Plymouth wanted to be different at the time. Just because? Yeah, there really is no reason to a lot of this. Chrysler's version of these Hemis had three size variations that were available depending on the application. 
for our purposes here, we will examine Chrysler's version of these engines instead of the Dodge and DeSoto engines. They were 331 available with one two-barrel carb rated at 180 gross power, except in 1955, Chrysler's C300 with a dual quad setup that made 300 horsepower. Keep in mind, this is 1955. That's, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of power in that That's time. a lot. Yeah, and a C300, and not the ones you see driving around now. Nope. The 354, which would be purchased with dual quad setup in the Chrysler 300B. Chrysler is so unimaginative with their names. It's like, oh, here's some numbers in the letter. Yeah, I, I mean, that's have, have you seen the town and country Chrysler minivans? I mean, of course. Just, we don't. We don't. Put, think, it's like we drive it in the town and we drive it in the country. You can thank the big man for that one, the Leah Coca. Yeah. What about the city? Hey, he saved the company, though. Iacocca was with Ford at this time, though, so let's not go on. <laughs> yeah. Different fellow, man. The Chrysler 300B that made an impressive, for the time, 355 horsepower. This was the first American engine to produce more than one horsepower per cubic inch. And the 392 that, when equipped with a four-barrel car, produced... 375 horsepower. There was a mechanical fuel injection setup available in 300D that produced 390 horsepower. They had, they had 390 horsepower? They, in, about, in about 1958. Yeah. Mechanical insane. fuel injection in 1958? Now, mechanical fuel injection and digital and electronic fuel injection is different. Yeah. Electronic fuel injection, computers tell them what to do. But mechanical fuel injection, it's timed by the, with the same timing belt as the engine. Oh, okay. So it almost works in time like a clock. It's the same kind of, very complicated. A lot of people didn't really like it because it was weird in the 1950s. It's a grandfather clock underneath your hood. Yeah. I was gonna say, who in the right mind could even work on that at this time period? I mean, a few special guys, like there are a few Ford mechanics. This <laughs> is just the three guys that drink coffee every morning and go to work. The same kind of people that were working on ones in the vets at the time, because there were a handful of Corvettes made with a fuel injection system like that. So not only did you have a weird fuel system on your car, if you had a Corvette then, you also had a weird plastic car that just came out. So not a lot of that stuff was really done much. Dodge and DeSoto had their own versions of these engines and used them as applicable. This is all a major step up of power in a very short time. But keep in mind, these weren't going into small sports cars, pony cars, or mid-sized muscle cars. This was the mid-50s. There were no muscle cars yet. These big, powerful engines were going into large land yachts, lazy yet powerful cars. These big, powerful engines ran smooth and increased the perceived luxury of the Chrysler Imperial and the Chrysler New Yorker, and a handful of other Dodge and DeSoto passenger cars and trucks that where power was needed for work. These were not meant for fast cars, yet. The first generation Hemi lasted from 1950 to 1958, where, again, the design was mothballed for some other design types like the wedge engine. The Elephant would hibernate again until 1964. Why do they keep putting this engine to sleep? Why do they keep putting the Elephant down, Caleb? They, they always have. We haven't yet reached the longest hibernation time for the Hemi, though. While the Hemi was in hibernation, the Big Three noticed drag racing was becoming popular in the United States. As we all know, when a corporation notices a trend, they see money. Naturally, by 1962, each of the Big Three had factory cars built to race. This time was called the Superstock Years. These cars were stripped down, no frills cars with monster engines. These are the years when the Pontiac Catalina Super Duty, Ford Falcon Thunderbolt, Impala Supersport 409, 
Plymouth Savoy Superstock, and Dodge Polaris Superstock were reigning supreme with the drags. Each of these factory race cars had giant high compression engines, manual transmissions, pretty interesting weight saving techniques. We talked about it a little bit earlier. This is that. This is those NASCAR years, man. This is when they're starting to get into that war on the big power, and I, I love the Catalina Super Duty. That's such an awesome looking car. It really is. Major, major power build definitely is. There were these crazy weight saving techniques, such as were the first uses of aluminum fiberglass front clips, lack of air conditioning and heat, lack of radios, base model wheels with dog dish caps, no exhaust running from the headers back. Some even went as far as dipping all the body panels in acid and using much thinner windshields and drilling holes in the frame like Swiss cheese just to get an edge. Can you imagine dipping a body panel in just acid just beca just because? For, weight, for the weight saving? Yeah, it just... Uh, it, it's like drilling out holes and turning it into Swiss cheese looking like Monty from the Rescue Rangers attacked exactly. it. But if you can look at some of these, like the Ford, I believe the Ford Falcon Thunderbolt, the uh, frame was a box frame, but it had holes drilled all the way yeah. down the sides of it it's in more, the frame. It's more airflow, man. Cut some weight. This would end as quickly as it started when the big three stopped supporting racing publicly. Okay, so General Motors was the only company who stopped. They actually issued an order to all of its divisions that they could not put big block engines into the intermediate and smaller cars, except in the Corvette, which got the best and newest one ever available, which is still true today. Exactly, it's what you get to be a flagship line. But all of the knowledge gained during the building of these monsters would heavily influence what would come out of Detroit starting in 1964. So hot riders have known for a long time that the quickest way to go fast is take a small car, stuff a giant engine under the hood, and hang on. We can thank John DeLorean for making this happen and beginning the muscle car era when he and some of other engineers took the Pontiac Tempest, a car that was never meant to be a hot rod, and shoved the big 389 out of the full-sized Bonneville into it, violating GM's order. Legend has it that DeLorean was going out and seeing young people stop light racing in cars they had built themselves. Then the idea hit him. What if he builds a car for them, and then they give him money for it? Uh, and that is how the GTO was born. Can I say, for all that we love GM, they always seem so uptight when it comes to fun stuff. And that goes even to today. They're so backwards about it. Yeah, it's they, like, they try so hard not to do anything cool. It's like, no, we can't do that. If you can't do it wearing white New Balances, they're not interested. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, we're going to bring back the Blazer. But we're not going to bring back the K5 type blazer. We're just going to make an SUV out of it. We're going to basically make it an Equinox. Yeah. <laughs> Crossovers. <laughs> yeah. That's like a Mach-E Mustang. It's like, that's not a Mustang. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into the K5 blazer at a later date. <laughs> oh, yeah. This caused the others to fall in with this idea. Chevrolet rolled out the Chevelle SS. Oldsmobile brought a Cutlass with the 442. The meaning of 442 is still argued today. What did they mean by this? It depends on who you ask. I've what? always accepted that uh, four was, you know, uh, a four-barrel car. The other four was for uh, four-speed uh, transmission. Four-speed transmission. And or the four two wheels. testicles that you had between two, your legs. <laughs> two could have been dual exhaust. Could have been two valves per cylinder. I like mine. <laughs> I know. Everybody's seen a 442 around. I just, 
I've never understood why it's, I mean, why is it that, you know, that's a weird. It was not the power that it Yeah, made. I know. No. It, was just, <laughs> it was not that. <laughs> you know what? 442. I was born in April of 42, and that's what we're going to name this engine. I can see a GM boardroom. Yes, and the number's 442. Mm. Sounds great. Just the name sounded good. So, Buick had a Skylark. Dodge had the Cornette. Plymouth had the Belvedere 2. Whatever happened to the Belvedere 1? Don't ask. Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> I think they stopped those. I think the Belvedere, first generation Belvedere, was ended in 1961. Mm-hmm. So before that, after that was the Belvedere 2, was a much smaller car. Gotcha. Well, I mean, at least. I, here we are with them. It's like, oh, that's just the 2. That's the 2 version. It's not a 442. It's the Belvedere 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we cut out all the numbers and just threw it at the end. Now, don't forget, the Belvedere 2 was, was a... Uh, Favorite of one of your heroes, Richard Petty. We'll get to that in a minute. That's the king, man. The king. And Ford had the Fairlane, but Ford saw an opportunity in the small car market and gave us the Mustang. Creating the market for the pony car, now they saw an opportunity in the small car market and gave us the Mustang, creating the market for the pony car. Now they all needed a pony car to sell to, so we got the Camaro, the Firebird, Barracuda, and the AMC Javelin. Dodge would get the Challenger in 1970, and Plymouth would redesign the Cuda that same year on the new e-body platform that it shared with the Challenger. We will probably revisit these days in a future episode, so stay tuned. Now that we are caught up on the muscle car era, we can get back on the subject of the Hemi and its effects on the muscle car era. So you're telling me we can finally talk about the Hemi now? We can talk about the 426 Elephant. I've been ready this whole time. Uh, Me too. In 1964, Chrysler brought the Hemi back. This time, they actually referred to it as a Hemi. Chrysler trademarked in that year. The newly resurrected Hemi was designed to be a racing engine and run in NASCAR for the 1964 season in a Plymouth Belvedere. Richard Petty and the Hemi dominated that season. So is Richard Petty a big deal or something? No, no. No. He's only nicknamed The King. I don't know. Is that his character from Cars? And yet again, we dig in on Cars. Cars is a trending topic for us every single week. All goes back to Cars. Hey, That and rural narrow carriers. Cars is an American uh, classic. Well, for the 1965 season, NASCAR banned the Hemi and its use due to Ford's complaints because the engine wasn't available for the public to buy. Leave it up to a bunch of dudes at Ford to complain and ruin something for the rest of us. Was this Hank the Deuce at this time? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, that guy's the It was one of Hank the Deuce's boys. Well, you think they had more to worry about in 1964 with that big fist fight with Ferrari that they yeah. had going on. But I mean, how much money did they spend at this time? Like On racing? Yeah. <laughs> Probably a lot of half a billion dollars. Yeah. Half a billion with a B. Yeah. Le Mans alone. I mean, Ford's so petty, man. Ford, stop being petty. Richard Petty left NASCAR for drag race in 1965 that year due to Bill France, Big Bill France, banning the Hemi. So, a little bit on Big Bill France. He's the creator of NASCAR, essentially. He was their first president. He created NASCAR in uh, Daytona Beach. He kind of pulled together the NASCAR series when it was really a bunch of random racing series around the country. He kind of organized NASCAR into what it is today. 
and he created tons of racetracks. He created Daytona, the banks of Daytona, he created Talladega, Charlotte Motor Speedway. Mm-hmm. He is essential during this era. So him banging the Hemi, I mean, I wonder how much Ford was paying him. One. You think he was that kind of guy? Oh, dude. Grease the palms? Come oh, on. No doubt. But also, it's the whole France family that still runs NASCAR to this day, too. The so the group still owns it? Yeah. NASCAR has been owned by the same family since its inception. I think it's uh, Bill's grandson now. Jim? Yeah, France? Jim France. Yeah. So, Mr. Mr. France, if you're listening, no offense. No. You're great people. But, like, think about it. Like, the NFL, the NBA, everybody has multiple owners for each team. Meanwhile, NASCAR just has its one governing body has a CEO, and it's the same people that created it years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's just like one, it's just like Secession, the TV show. Oh, great <laughs> TV show, by the way, if you haven't watched it. I haven't looked at it. Oh. Right, so tell me this, Petty left NASCAR for drag racing. Tell me about some of that stuff. Well, Petty's foray into drag racing is not really talked about that much, and I can uh, tell you why. Tell me. Someone died. I know there was an accident in 65 uh, in a drag racing. I think he went, I don't know if he went to NHRA or... It was a form of organized drag racing that Dodge still supported Petty using the Hemi with. And uh, I think there was an accident on track and he ended up hitting, hitting someone and uh, it killed him. They don't really talk about that a lot. It never, no. It's never mentioned. It's a very well, sensitive subject amongst NASCAR. So what I'm hearing is that Petty was with Dodge at NASCAR when they banned that Dodge's big engine for that year that was going to make everybody a winner instead of going to another team, another uh, another corporation like Ford or somebody else. He stuck with Dodge and raced with them in a whole other area of the sport. Yeah, he did. Well, not the same sport. I mean, drag racing and NASCAR are totally separate. They don't have anything to do with each other. And let's not sit here and make Petty this stand-up Dodge guy, because if we're going to be honest about Richard Petty, he kind of flip manufactures a lot. This isn't a Richard Petty episode, but later in his career, he flipped from Dodge to Ford to Chevrolet. Oh, I mean, did he, he drive a Pontiac for a while, too? Yes, he drove, yeah, yes. He drove a Pontiac. He drove Pontiacs. I mean, he drove anything. If you can throw an engine in it and make it go fast, Richard Petty was probably behind the wheel. Huh. And like we talked about last week, a lot of his success, you're hitting it right now, was because of the heavy engine, because people thought it was overpowered at the time. Hmm. Very interesting. Well... In response, the public being able to purchase the car and parts on it is referred to as homologation. At this time, a manufacturer had to make so many of whatever they wanted to run available at dealerships. It's what the S in NASCAR stands for, stock. And nowadays, you probably couldn't buy many things that are off those cars. Then we lost the whole stock part of it. Yeah, yeah. Caleb, you talked about this in our NASCAR series. You know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. This is where that came from. This is that time. This is that time. I know there was a few uh, manufacturers, and Dodge included, that would have groups like Edelbrock and some of those big names make parts and let them stamp their uh, own numbers on them so you could buy them at the uh, over the counter at the service department. And then they could claim, you can buy that at our showroom. That's a stock part. And so that way they could run it in whatever racing that required homologation. Well, you know what NASCAR stands for, right? Yeah. National Association of Stock Car Auto Racing. And uh, Stock car. Yeah, stock car. 
that's the that's the words. Yeah. yeah. They kind of left that behind, uh, you know, when they kind of hit when they hit the eighties, but those plastic cars with the stickers. Yeah, we run around for the eighties, nineties, definitely running away from it. Then the car of tomorrow came out, and we were nowhere near it. And now we are here. We are today. In 1966, Chrysler went ahead and made the Hemi available in its street trim uh, for homologation purposes. The street Hemi boasted 425 horsepower and 490 feet pound of torque. That's a lot of power. Keep in mind that this time they're still uh, measuring in gross. We'll get to that in a minute, the difference between gross and net. We don't measure horsepower like that anymore. A lot of people claim that it was underrated the street hemi and the race hemi weren't too different they share the same block and heads however the race hemi had a cross ram intake and tube style headers while the street hemi had an inline dual quad carburetor set up and cast iron exhaust manifolds the street hemi was offered with either a 727 torque flight three-speed automatic transmission or a four-speed on the floor, all go into a Dana Posi track rear end. It was a ground pounding combination with either tram. What'd you say it was ground pounding track? Ground pounding. Pound, absolutely. Oh. Pounding the ground. Yeah, like Donkey Kong throwing barrels. <laughs> Pound of the ground. Oh yeah. <laughs> a lot of these cars pretty much were Donkey Kong. Like they were the closest Donkey Kong, King Kong, whatever you want to call them. That's Long dick dog. <laughs> That's what they were in car form. Oh. Most of them you can get in dog pecker red like Cody's. Hey. <laughs> That's more uh. red to you. Uh, then there were special promotions for marketing from Dodge and Plymouth, which I think shows who was having the most fun and what they were building back then. Absolutely. Chevrolet never would have got into this marketing stuff like this. Chevrolet just seems like the kind of people who wear a suit to work and wear a suit to sleep, wear a suit everywhere. I just, I mean, just think of the they debadge a Chevy Malibu recently on the commercials, like show the people the car. It's like, oh, I feel like I'm in a Lexus, and then they reveal, no, you're in a Chevy. It's like, no, nobody, no, you know, those commercials, like. I don't know whether that should be insulting or not. Dude, like, who's it insulting to? <laughs> exactly. I don't know who it's insulting, but someone out there is just like, nah, that's a that's a fucking Chevy. <laughs> nah, dude, this is this is just a Chevy. This uh this dash right here, it's gonna crack in about three years. <laughs> you feel that? You're pushing all the plastic, you hear it creaking? Yeah, yeah, that's see this that's leather right here? Oh yeah, it's cracking. It's cracking very soon. That's that's the thing about Chevrolets, man. Like, some Chevrolets look so great, but the interior is just—I will say—aside from the Corvette, has just always been such a piece of shit. Like, it feels so cheap. And I own a Chevrolet, so I I can say I I currently own a Chevrolet car. (laughs) I own a Corvette right now, and the steering wheel in my vet the same one that you could get in the uh, Cobalt. So, oh, Cobalt and the Mm -hmm. Solstice, which I had one of those too, but. Just seems like reusing some cheap parts in a car like that's kind of sad. We're going to pick back up next week with our discussion of the Hemi. Catch us then. It's good talking to you guys.